Welcome everyone to Radix Nutrition's podcast with me, Mike Rudling, where we discuss all things health, performance and nutrition, from the design process behind our products to the amazing feats of the people who use them. So today on the podcast, um, we're lucky enough to have Chris Martin join us. So Chris is involved with Project Empower, so he's their, their ground contact, he's got a lot of experience ocean rowing, and so they've brought him on board uh, to help out with weather routing and just to be a contact for general advice and he's the one sort of talking back and forth with the team. So Chris, welcome to the podcast. Hi there, great to see you. So Chris, you've got a, a really interesting background that I'm sure a lot of our viewers would, would love to hear about. I mean, ocean rowing, such an incredible sport, such a, a demanding sport and people always wonder how do people even get into that? I mean, what, what sort of drove you into into ocean rowing, how do you end up in this sort of crazy sport? <laughs> it's a really weird, uh, twisted sort of journey that I had. So unlike most ocean rowers, I actually had a history in rowing before deciding to row an ocean. Um, and um, I was part of the British squad for a few years as a junior um, and heard about the first Atlantic race and thought it sounded quite exciting. Uh, moved on to be part of the under-23 team and finally the senior team um, at sort of like world championship level. Didn't quite get my legs up into the Olympic team, but sort of uh, did okay for a bit until somebody realised I was, uh, you know, only six foot high and not quite big enough. And I wasn't quite big enough an engine um, to, to be part of the, the Olympic squad proper. Are you being um, a, little bit, a, bit a little bit modest? Chris, you've been to six world rowing championships. Uh, yes, yeah, <laughs> and came back with medals from each of them. So. Better than most. <laughs> but I did, yeah, I, I had had loads of fun. Really enjoyed my time in in sort of like well, I was uh, lottery funded um, here in the UK for a little while, uh, which just made it viable. You know, trying to trying to live, work, eat, and row, and do a university course at the same time. It's just it's just you've been pulled in so many directions at once that at least being able to know that you can put food on the table and and a roof over your head, you know, that's a, pretty much as a as a sportsman, that's all you want and need, isn't it? Uh, you need to be able to get up at six in the morning, go training for five or six hours, come back home, rest, mm. get up, go and do your weight session in the afternoon and, and to be able to perform at your best. Um, and then once I got dropped from the squad after a, a patch of illness, Ill injury and some pretty bad results, uh, I started, I was still wasn't done with rowing. I was still really enjoyed it. Um, loved being part of a team and a crew. Um, and then came back to this concept of rowing an ocean, which I'd heard about previously and thought it sounded like quite good fun. Um, and originally, I think, signed up uh, for the Atlantic Rowing Race, uh, which at the time was run by a company called Woodvale, um, and signed up as a, a pairs team with a friend of mine from the rowing club. And about six months later, realised that we'd done absolutely nothing. We got scraped together a bit of a website, and then that was it. We hadn't done anything else. Um, and it became pretty apparent that nothing else was really going to happen unless you know one of us step to the side and let the other one get on with it and uh, I sort of stepped forward and was like right well I, I still want to do this <laughs> um, 
and eventually got chatting to um, Ken Crutchlow at the Asian Rowing Society, who um, have been managing, well, I said managing is probably the wrong word, but um, keeping detailed records of everybody who has rowed an ocean for the last 45, 50 years, um, right the way back to sort of the, the 60s and 70s. Um, when those sort of initial first first rows um, took place. Um, and he uh, sat me down with a cup of tea for a bit, showed me what a watermaker looked like, showed me, gave me a packet of dried food, um, showed me what an e-perb was, uh, and booted me out the door. Oh, and said, oh, well, if you're looking for a boat, here's, here's a guy to call, uh, Jeff Allen. Lovely guy, he's got a boat best solo boat out there that's uh, available for charter so uh, give him a call I was like a bit dazed gave Jeff a call uh, Jeff said well I've got a boat if you want to use it that's great if you don't no no problems at all I need somewhere to keep it I hear you're a member of a local boat club and we bizarrely we only lived about five miles away from each other so it was a, quite a nice fit in that sense um, and it worked out that we had an agreement whereby he could keep the boat at my rowing club at Molsey. Um, and if I decided to use it, then that would be great. And I'd pay him for, for using it. And if not, then that was fine. And I, he just got a little bit of time where he didn't have to worry about where the boat was being stored. Um, and he got the use of his front garden back, which his wife was very keen on. <laughs> um, and everything sort of fell into place from there. So after getting a boat, then I called the Ocean Race Society and said, well, I see you've got a, a race happening. So I'm like, oh, well, okay, fine. What do I need to enter? Well, just let me know that you want to enter and your name's down. You don't need to pay any money. I'm like, right, fine, okay, great. So within the space of, I don't know, maybe a week, I'd got a boat, somewhere to keep it, and a race entry. And so it was like, well, the university is telling me this is going to happen. And then, of course, as soon as the boat arrives, Everybody is saying, "Well, hey, look, so Chris, you're you're running the Atlantic." Then I'm like, "Well, yeah, I guess so." You know, I hadn't really put that much effort and thought into it yet. But if it's this easy, this is great. Um, and that was how my my journey into to ocean rowing started. Had you done much in the ocean, sailing or, or anything up until that point? No, no, no. Sort of other than. You know, being on a ferry, that's probably about the uh, my only experience of being at sea. So it's a really different um, environment to be in. But that's entirely typical of most ocean rowers when they decide to, to start rowing an ocean. I'm, I'm quite curious, Chris, um, obviously being sort of a high-level uh, rower and then going into ocean rowing. Um, I wonder about the skill transfer and... and how much of a, a difference that is. Obviously, there's a huge amount of logistical factors and you're actually living on the boat and all that stuff. But what what do you mm -hmm. find is, is different about the way you um, have to stroke the oars or uh, your actual technique uh -huh. or things like that? Yeah, it's, I mean, the boat is so heavy that it, it is entire, it's almost entirely incomparable. So if you try and row an ocean rowing boat like you would a, a single skull. One weighs 14 kilos, the other one weighs nearly a ton. Mm. And you come up to the front end and you get all connected and, and your back just shatters because there's just no... Con you, you, you rip the oars through the water. You're putting loads of effort in, but the boat still goes. It's 
the same distance. You know, it's not going to make any really appreciable difference. Um, So it really is, it's all about just, you get the boat moving as best you can. And then it's just around just keeping it moving um, and trying to connect to the water. um, Something I spent a while trying to talk to Damien about because he's just so physically capable of, breaking the oars if you put everything into it i reckon yeah he was comparing um, it to uh, no. um like a, a row at the gym a, a machine row or a, or a weighted row every stroke being mm. being that intense and that heavy yeah yeah i mean it is it just you kind of almost want to do a bit less because if you pull if you rip the oars through the water you get this sort of cavitation like this bubbling up behind it and and all you're doing is creating like this width whipped cream result where there's this white water that's coming out the back and it's like clearly there's a load of power going down but it's not actually moving the boat mm. as, as effectively or as efficiently as you could do um, so it's trying to to get the boat you know, the boat speed up to that point where you can put more and more power in but in order to go double the speed you need to square the power so you need to have like four rowers to go faster uh, uh, double the speed of one in the same boat and that just isn't really viable so it's, it really is all about little incremental gains in terms of the from the physical aspect and the standpoint of things um, and then the whole other aspect is well this I guess there's probably three parts one is uh, the boat and the equipment that you've got secondly is the crew and the rower and how they're uh, moving the vessel physically, and then it comes down to weather, currents, um, waves, and and all that sort of uh, natural natural elements. I think. How did you train for that? So, you, I mean, coming from a um, Olympic sport background, how did you adapt to performing in such a challenging and diff- difficult environment? Yeah. So my my whole mantra through sort of preparation and training for it was all about finding comfort and discomfort um, and being comfortable in uncomfortable situations. So I'd purposely, or I did like a a cycle ride between uh, my rowing club were having a training camp out in Amsterdam. Um, So I was like, well, I can cycle out from London, I'll catch the ferry, and then I'll cycle from Calais across to Amsterdam, camp the night, and then cycle back. That'd be great. What a great um, sort of, training session, something a bit different, something I haven't done much of. Um, oh, yeah, I don't need panniers. That's fine. I've just got this big Bergen backpack. That'll be fine. I'll stuff everything in there. Um, you know, I just set off on this sort of crazy journey. And, yeah, it was terrible. And panniers are a really, really good idea if you're doing any sort of distance cycling. My ass was in tatters. I could barely sit down. Um, but just having pushed myself out of my comfort zone it had massively expanded it and when you're out on the ocean for the first time or the second time or the third time once you especially once you get out of the sight of land during your actual passage that comfort zone is just blown apart your everything is way outside your comfort zone it's way outside anything you've experienced before and it's a it's a really scary place to be um start off with and then after the first night you kind of realize that you know you didn't die last night so you're probably not going to die tonight um you're you're 
sort of tweaking things and adjusting um, elements of the boat and how you're rowing and adapting to life on board quite quickly. Um, and the more that you can do that, the more you're sort of that crazy burst of nervous energy starts to settle down a little bit. Um, and then you start to ease into things and, and things improve dramatically from there. So I guess just a question from um, for our community who are less familiar with ocean rowing. Do you want to, what rows have you done and do you want to talk us through your first one? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so my first row was in 2005, well, the winter of 2005. Um, I arrived into uh, the finish line in 2006. Um, I was uh, a solo rower on the Atlantic Rowing Race. Uh, which goes from the Canary Islands just off the coast of Africa um, across to the Caribbean uh, and arrived into Antigua at 1.30 in the morning on Bob Marley's birthday. Which nice. is a fantastic time to arrive. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was uh, that was my first one. And then um, very actually about 36 hours after arriving, uh, my girlfriend, um, who'd also been rowing in the race at the same time, uh, dumped me. Oh. Um, and so I called up a friend of mine who had also done the race, uh, Mick Dawson, and we had a little bit of a chat. I was like, well, mate, I, you know, I need a beer. <laughs> it's like, oh, right, which bar? Um, we got chatting. You put the idea in my head then that maybe we could do the row as a, as a pair, as a duo, uh, across the North Pacific, which would be from Japan across to San Francisco. Uh, which at the time hadn't been done by a pair. Um, the two solos who had done it had got toes in for 100 or so miles uh, into into America. Um, and so what was it? it must have been three or four years later in 2009, we set out from Japan as a, as a pair uh, to, to take on that route. And 189 days later, we rode underneath the Golden Gate and, and finished the journey, which was just, yeah, epic, destructive, um, amazing. <laughs> it was just like, it broke me and made me in so many different ways that I'll never quite fully understand. 189 but yeah, had a, yeah, just over six months. Wow. I'm curious it about was. a couple of things, Chris. Um, you said, you know, after, after rowing, um, you wanted to to carry on and, and try out an ocean row. And you can't say that casually, but for a, a lot of people saying they want to do an ocean row, not many people want to do an ocean row, you know. It's, it sounds pretty horrible to most people. So I'm yeah. curious, first yeah, yeah, off, what, what drew you into that and what, what you think the appeal is maybe for yourself and also for, for all the people who do it. And then second off, what brought you back to do another one straight after doing your first one so you clearly weren't weren't put off too much? Ah, yeah. I mean, what drew me to Ocean Marine to start off with? I think it was it was because it was so unique and special and different. Um, I think having left or been kicked out of the British squad <laughs> for bad results, um, it it was like I was Chris the rower, and I loved rowing at, at club level and really enjoyed that, but. It was something about my like personal identity, I think, and how I saw myself and how I saw others see me. Um, and 
it was a chance to go and do something special and different and yeah put myself out in the world and and see if I, I guess also to test myself and see if I, it was possible and see if I could do it see if I measured up to what I had seen other people do um, I think initially as well I set out with uh, an ego and the ocean just absolutely destroys ego <laughs> so rapidly um, because there's you know no yeah, former British um, rower got a good chance at you know, I'm not the strongest, but I've got a pretty good chance to know how to move a boat. Um, I'm going to take on the the record, which I think at the time was 42 days um, for solo across the Atlantic. Oh, well, there we go. There's my record. Let's go. Let's have it. And after about three or four days, I was way off the pace. There was no chance of me getting close to that record speed. Um, so I was like, right, I've got to. We've got to do something big. I'm going to, right, let's lose some weight from the boat. So going through the tool kit and some odd bits of spares, like, right, don't need the hammer, that's fine. What else can I throw out? Um, empty some of the um, the day tanks of ballast water. Uh, so 20 litres of that went over the side. I was like, well, I must have lost maybe 25 kilos in the boat weight. That weighs, you know, nearly 1,000 kilos. Um, so that's got to make a really appreciable difference. Uh, and uh, two days after that, I was like, yeah, no, this is, it's made no difference at all. <laughs> like, what was I thinking? Um, and at that point, I realized that I wasn't going to break any speed record. And I had a choice. I could either keep on, like, getting up super early, thrashing myself, doing everything I possibly could, and and trying to break that record no matter what knowing that in my heart there was no way I'd ever be able to to achieve that goal. Or I could reframe the the situation I was in and just take it as an incredible experience and enjoy it. And that was the route I chose to go. And I'm so happy I did because I just loved every moment of the trip after that, just experiencing every single moment, every single day, every single stroke. Um, and and just like doing the best I could, but not being beholden to some abstract concept of record and pace that I was never going to be able to achieve. Um, and just had a, a much more enjoyable journey because of it. Um, yeah, I'll be laughing and chatting to myself most days um, and, and had a great trip. Um, and I think off the back of that, I mean, lots of things went wrong. But, I mean, from uh, electrics going down, the water maker breaking, um, all my oars snapped. I had to get some more resupplied by the support yacht. Um, the rudder snapped in half. I All the things that you sort of, now, I would look at an old boat and go, right, we're going to rip all that out, put new stuff in it, and you'll be fine. Um, at the time, I didn't know anything about that. Yeah. And I don't think the sport really, you know, it was still quite an early, early phase for, for the sport as a whole. Um, now we know a lot different and, and we'd, we'd probably pick up on those things a lot sooner as potential problems. Um, which is why then when I got into Antigua also, I think my mum really wanted to see me. So I was like, I kind of felt a bit beholden to go home, but 
had I not had those sort of family ties pulling me home, I can entirely imagine, and I think I sort of daydreamed about, well, maybe I could just row up through the various West Indian islands and then, I don't know, arrive into like, Florida somewhere. That'd be kind of cool, wouldn't it? Um, and instead got chatting to Mick Dawson about the concept of, of taking on the Pacific. Wow. Um, now, that one took about six months of Mick convinced. Well, he sort of, he put it very gently as a, what do you think? And I was like, yes, instantly, really excited about the prospect of, of going to do something that really, in my mind, hadn't been done, taking on a real challenge and and stamping that sort of a sense of legacy. You know, you're in the Guinness World uh, Book of World Records, you're like, you're not, your name's not going to leave that. It's always going to be on the shelf somewhere and someone will open it and be like, oh, yeah, look at that. Um, and that opportunity to be first was something that was quite strong. Um so there was quite a lot of carrot from that side of things. Uh, but then also um, being back in the real world and having a job and sitting at a desk and answering phones. And I think about six months after getting back home, I, I saw a memo that had gone around the staff saying um, about how teaspoons had to be put in the dishwasher, um, handled down so that any residue landed on the end of the handle and not on the end of the teaspoon. And I think for me, that was like the breaking point, not for the job. I still stayed there. I love the guys there. It's great. But it was definitely the moment I called up Mick and went, yeah, actually, mate, I'm definitely in. Let's let's go and take on this challenge. I just can't take too many more memos about T-Speed. <laughs> yeah, I am, um, you know, in, in my uh, former career as an athlete, it's something I struggled with when you when you go from being in a community that tries hard as physically and mentally possible towards achieving a goal to go into one where that is absent in everyday life is um, takes a bit of adjustment. Yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. I think there's been a lot of former professional athletes from whatever sporting background they come from really struggle and I don't think it's something that sporting um, like governing bodies are particularly good at supporting all those athletes who don't make you know who either do make the squad and then I th- they I think, decide to move on I think a big one is just refinding a purpose I think and you've obviously found mm. that in rowing and um just to an incredible level. May I ask, um, that was your motivation going into rowing the Pacific. What motivated you on a difficult day while you were rowing the Pacific? 189 days is just an unimaginably long time to struggle towards the same goal. Mm. 24 hours a day, seven days a week for 189 days in a row. (laughs) I think it became, I mean, it basically just became a job. So, yeah, like every, every day, well, like six times a day, the alarm would go off. We'd be like, oh, right, okay, five minutes, I'm on my way. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Crawl out the cabin, get on the oars, get off the oars, go and sleep. And it, it just became, that was what life was. Um, and I guess that sort of makes it a bit easier, doesn't it, in some respects, because there's no, you're not questioning stuff 
very often. You know, if, if you were always like, oh, God, why am I here? What, what is all this about? Um, you'd, you'd, well, the problem is also you can't, it's really difficult to quit rowing an ocean. You know, <laughs> you, you stop rowing, you're still in a boat on the ocean. You can't go anywhere, really. Yeah. Really tough uh, scenario to sort of be in in that sense. Um, but yeah, there were some really, really tough times when I didn't want to be there and I wanted to get off. And I think, I don't know what, I think the, the drive behind it changed multiple times through those through those hard moments. Um, I think early on it was sort of that desire to succeed and, and complete it. Um, and then I definitely remember there was a moment, I'm not a particularly religious person at all, but there was a moment on day maybe 110 or something like that and the current was coming against us and we were struggling to make any sort of headway really fighting against it I was absolutely exhausted and just had enough of being on the water um, and yeah I kind of had a bit of a breakdown and a cry and a little thought to myself and I, I prayed for a bit and and asked for the current to change um, because I just couldn't cope mentally with what was happening and, and with the situation we were in. And within half an hour, the current did change mm. and it changed for a couple of hours and then it went back to what it was doing before. Who knows? Still can't. Or I've got, it's, yeah, freaky and... Uh, scary and amazing but there's yeah um still kind of on the fence in terms of religion but it's like there's something out there looking over us you know that yeah. that's ready to help if we really really need it i think w w one thing um it's always struck me in a lot of uh typical sports you can push as hard as you can right up to a point of failure and abandonment and uh, I was going to say safety, but it's kind of an irrelevant word in that instance, but you can just stop and it's all good and try again another day. But rowing is one of those um, sports where you've got yourself into it. You've still got to get yourself back out, right? Mm -hmm. So you can't push right to that breaking point in case something bad happens, right? You've still got to get yourself out. Yeah, Absolutely, and as we got later and later, we set off in May, which is quite nice and warm in Japan, uh, very pleasant. Um, and by the time we got into San Francisco, it was the middle of November, um, and as we were going through that, I mean, I lost twenty, nearly twenty-five kilos in weight, and I, I bulked up a bit, but I'm definitely not a lightweight rower. And by the end, I could have been well in terms of the physical requirements anyway <laughs> certainly certainly not from the ability to put any power down um i mean yeah it definitely got to a point where jumping into the water to scrape the barnacles off that were growing on on the hull was getting back onto the boat afterwards was proving a little bit more of a challenge um and we were starting to waste away at that point and there was it was 
I think they, one of the only times that Mick and I had an argument was about whether or not we should keep rowing. And I wanted to keep rowing because I wanted, at that point, I was like, we're 20 days away. Let's just keep rowing. Um, and it was like, yeah, but we know the wind's going to come against this. You're clawing out half a knot, which is no significant distance, really. You know, we can make that up in in heart. The, the, the progress you're making in, in, in two hours, we'd make in 20 minutes with yeah. the wind behind us. So let's just pop the pressure, anchor in, wait, rest, recover. Because if we keep on pushing like this, there won't be us at the end of it you know we'll push ourselves too hard i just and go over the edge it's just amazing when you you know i come from an endurance sport background where we you can have a lot of the same conversations around um uh physiological capabilities and and the ability to perform over a long period of time but when you start moving into that extreme endurance sport where you just have to maintain a good sort of metabolic safety margin on what you're doing you know physical and mental just to be able to look after yourself if it all gets really challenging is um is something we talk about a lot i think when when we try and look at uh, how to support someone physically through through our product and what we do to make sure they're in the best um position possible to be able to look after themselves when it gets really really tough but um can't be many sports more challenging than the notion rowing and a 189 day row is um phenomenal mm. so um just incredible experience tough man <laughs> <laughs> well i think it's we had a really good crew and i think that's it that we each had different things that we brought to the the team um we looked after each other and i think that's the other part a, a big part of the the whole challenge is to be able to um, to bounce to, to spot when somebody else is at risk um, and to back them up and support them and get them back into the right place and to, so you can move forwards together. You know, that's a, a real strength. So, Chris, we've um, we've obviously met you through our involvement with, with Project Empower and um, being their, mm. their ground contact, you probably speak to them a, a lot more, but we're, we're absolutely enthused with what they're doing and, and we're following them every day. Um, so I'd love to hear from you. Um, obviously, Fergus has had to pull out for medical reasons, so you, know, you just spoke about having a crew and that's a big big part of success in, in a peer's row and then obviously now Damien has gone from that mindset and had to completely change his approach. So can you give us an update yeah. on, on how Damien's doing and how his progress is looking and perhaps what's what's changed now that Fergus has had to be evacuated? Yeah, actually, as I was saying that, I was just thinking, poor old Damien. <laughs> it's, a, it's a hell of a uh, challenge to be, yeah, sort of have everything, your whole mindset being about, you know, the two of us and then all of a sudden it's, it's the one of us. Um, I think Damien's in a very fortunate position in that he has previous experience of rowing the Atlantic solo, going the other direction. Um, I know he didn't want to do another solo row and this has sort of been foisted upon him, but having had that experience of going by himself previously will hold him in massive stead, um, really help him out. Um, he's He's still doing really well at the moment. He's about to get, say, run over 
probably the right phrase, but there's um, remnants of a hurricane that uh, it's sort of destabilised and it's all flattened out and not uh, not as savage as it once was. But you're still going to see sort of gusts in excess of 40 miles an hour or 40 knots, um, sort of sustained winds for about 12 to 18 hours. And this would be, so I was literally just giving him a weather update just now. Um, so yeah, sort of on the 6th and the 7th, so a little bit later this week, he's going to have to cope with some really pretty savage winds. and What sort of sea state meter. with that? Sorry, are you going to say sea state? Sorry, yeah, yeah, about four to five metres, um, which is the significant wave height. So that means that's like the top one third uh, of the average wave height. But of course, waves can sometimes confluence together. So you can get waves that are double that. Mm. So potentially 10 metre waves. Um, much bigger than a house. I, yes, <laughs> just, I know seven seven to ten ten second period so fairly close together still um Can, what, what I think sort of advice point, sorry how do you um what advice do you give to him and what would he be doing in preparation for that yeah I, mean, I think it's at this stage he's still got uh, a day or so before it it starts to, to punch up and and get a bit aggressive so it's around um getting things strapped down, prepared, ready. And it's it's big, it's the strongest weather he's faced so far, but it's not uh it's not game changing. You know, it's gonna slow him down, I think, um, because it's gonna mean he's gonna have to put the parachute anchor out. Um, which is like a, a big water parachute that holds on to the sea. Um and the sea state it, it goes up and down but it doesn't the ocean's not moving. Well it is, but it's actually only moving because of the Gulf Stream rather than because of the the wind that's uh, that's pushing it. Um, so for him, I think for a few hours, he just, well. Also, the other part is getting prepared, so making sure that he's got uh, all his safety kit tethered and and strapped in into the boat, and he can easily access it. Um, deploying the parachute anchor is key making as much water as he possibly can just to weigh the boat down a little bit more and provide that extra self-writing motion um, should he need it. Uh, but to be honest, that parachute anchor should be, it should make it the safest place available. Um, it's going to be a bit rough. Um, I've seen a couple of videos of another crew I, I weather-rooted for uh, about five, six years ago, um, and they got run over by about by a hurricane. Oh, sorry, no, I was land support. I wasn't weather reading. But, um, yeah, they got run over basically by a hurricane. And they're in sort of 60, 70 mile an hour winds. And you can just see the back of these waves disappearing as they're filming out of their cabin. Um, and they're joking about chocolate bars and, <laughs> and what they're going to have for dinner. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a scary place to be, but... Um, the boat is it designed for it. Um, it's it's actually I would much rather be in an ocean rowing boat with a parachute anchor out the back than in a yacht because um, there's far more things to go wrong. It's not really designed to, to cope with those sort of conditions. Um, so yeah, Damien's just going to have to wait it out for, and it picks up around dusk, and um, by 
the afternoon, it'll be starting to ease off. So it isn't that long he has to wait it out for. Uh, um, but it's going to be, yeah, unhappy and unpleasant for him while, whilst, that's, um, whilst that's coming through. And yeah. then knowing Damien, he'll be like, right, I've had a rest. Crush your anchor in, let's get going. You mentioned there, Chris, um, you talk about the, the Gulf Stream, which we've obviously, we've heard a lot about um, for their row, but previous to that, I'd heard nothing about it. And, and hearing some of these, these facts about it, it um, seems quite incredible. Can you just explain, um, for our viewers' sake, what that is and, and how that actually forms? Yeah, so it's, um, there's different sorts of water current uh, around the world. Um, they form, they're mainly due to, well, they, they are, I think it's around salinity, uh, differences in salinity, so uh, salt, how salty the water is, right. um, is how they're actually formed from a sort of a mechanical standpoint. Um, but this is a, a warm water current which comes up from like the West Indies and, and Florida. Uh, it also joins another one that comes uh, around the Gulf. Uh, Gulf of Mexico, and then they join together and then power up the side of Florida, um, snake across the, the south end of Carolina, and then push out into the, the uh, into the Atlantic. Um, it's not quite like a a river. It's not quite as focused mm. and as, as narrow. It's maybe um, and the point the at uh, the point where um, Fergus and Damien joined the Gulf Stream. It was maybe 15 to 20 miles across. Um, uh, and now it's just, it's, as it progresses through, it sort of snakes and bends. And sometimes you might have noticed the other day that Damien suddenly went due north and he was like, what the hell is going on here? We're doing five knots. I'm hardly rowing. And it's not in the direction I want to be going in. I mean, thankfully it wasn't in the opposite direction to the, that which we wanted to go in. But all he could do was sort of row across it as best he could. Right. Um, uh, and it was, we were showing up uh, lightly as maybe sort of about three knots um, on the, the current model that we were looking at. And then the next day it had intensified to sort of a five plus knots that the Damien was actually experiencing. Um, and it snakes out, out to maybe six or 700 miles um, well, in fact, it sort of snakes all the way across the Atlantic, but it does dissipate um, partly because of the Labrador current, which is the cold water current that comes down uh, in between Greenland and uh, Nova Scotia and Canada. And that sort of disrupts um, some of that salinity mm. uh, and the warm waters that the, um, the Gulf Stream uh, is part of. But the, the temperature difference is phenomenal. So water in... Um, say around New York might be 15, 16 degrees centigrade uh, and in the middle of the Gulf Stream might be 10 degrees more. Mm. It, it's phenomenal and because of that as well you get an up, uh, you get a lot of uh, sea life as well. So there's an awful lot of, uh, well quite often fishermen would follow the um, the difference in temperature and, and look out for fish and upwelling of, of nutrients and stuff that, that that provides. But it means that I've got to try and guess at where the wind is going to be best for Damien, where the current is looking like it might be in a week or 10 days' time as a rough sort of outline to things and try and get him to 
sort of head towards various waypoints uh, on the way there. And it, there's been patches where he's been brilliant and he's done so well to get out and in it um, as, as early as he has. And it's meant he's got much more stable um, uh, weather as well. Like the winds are more, more reliably from the southwest now. Uh, whereas if he was further north, he'd be getting uh, much more variable um, wind conditions. And it's also given him this bit of a um, helping hand every now and again. So he's actually, I think one of his days, and if you wait one second, I'll just look at some of the data. Yeah, so he did one day where he did 109 nautical miles in a straight line. Wow. Um, the Guinness World Record for 24 hours is 116 miles. Oh, so right. only just shy. Wow, don't but actually, that. that was oh, it's just it's a phenomenal source. So it's like he just had a little bit of a tailwind behind him. Mm. He could have uh, <laughs> could have cracked it. No, you did mention um, you know you've worked with a, a lot of rowers and you've done rowing yourself, and you mentioned that that pretty much Damien Fergus was some of the the toughest you've worked with. I'm curious how you sort of come to that conclusion and what indicates that to you. Um, It's seeing, so every day I'll look at what the weather's doing. Um, I will take a guess at where I think the crew will be over the next five days based on their previous um, response to the wind and waves and the previous pace. Um, And I've sort of got a... feel now I've helped 160 odd people row across ocean so I feel I've got a pretty good handle on yeah what what a pair's boat should should be doing mm. roughly you know with one rower changing over okay so there's one person at the oars the whole time this is what we should sort of expect and within the first week I was like oh yeah that's about double what I was expecting them to be doing <laughs> like they're just basically like completely different I'm like right okay I just need to reframe what I think is possible um, they are such strong individuals. They're, clearly, they were ready to, to unleash hell as soon as they got on the water. Mm. I think the boat really helps as well. It's a little bit more slippery than some of the other um, boats that have been seen before. It's a little bit narrower, a little bit rounder in the hull. Um, and and it's, yeah, it's a good, fast-paced that it can that it can uh, allow them to to achieve. Yeah. Uh, I think all of those things together. Um, but you know, you can't do anything without an engine. Um, and those uh, Fergus and Damien are definitely some really big engines. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. It's like going out on a rib and you look at the back and you go, "Oh, we've got twin one thirties on here. This is going to be great fun." <laughs> so, speaking of um, of that engine, obviously we're part of fueling that engine. Um, and being a nutrition company, we're obviously very interested in, in what the strategy ends up looking like because obviously we were we were quite involved with um, the planning behind that and we met a lot with Damien to, to talk about that. But then obviously getting out on the boat, it's not always as straightforward as eating 10,000 calories like we might you know suggest he does. And we know um, they were struggling with, with appetite at the start. So have you got any insight on, on what their nutrition's been like and, and what the strategy there is and how it's ended up for them? Yeah, so I think the, um, and I've got to say the strategy of like just the sheer quantity of calories mm. 
was a real surprise for me um, and also the amount of protein it's it's always a struggle I think normally most most rows I would say is a minimum you should take four and a half thousand five thousand calories per person per day roughly um, and if we look historically, we can see the root, the average for a pair is about 95 days. So you might suggest um, you know, maybe, okay, we'll take 110 days of 5,000 calories a day, something like that. And Damien was like, no, we're going to take 60 days worth of food because that's what we're going to eat. Right. Okay. <laughs> Show me. <laughs> can, I, can I see you're working? Um, and he talked me through it and I was like, so how many calories are in each for each day? Mm. And I think we worked out, and it's pretty much 12,000 calories, which is just a ferocious amount of food yeah. that most normal people wouldn't be able to, to put down. But then having seen Damien and uh, Fergus was like, yeah, I think they'd, they'd actually be able <laughs> to, guys, one eh? of the few people like, yeah. who might be able to do it. Um you know, I think they've had the, uh, they've got um, breakfast and main meals uh, from you guys, from Radix. And then they've also got those, uh, the smoothie patches as well. And it literally, the plan was that every single time they come off the oars and change over, they'd fire a smoothie down. Um, and for, for most other crews, they might finish a, a session and have like a half chocolate bar or something like that. So it's a really different, um, makeup in terms of just the macronutrient side of things, you know, the amount of protein they're firing down them is phenomenal. Mm. And that can only be advantageous when you try to reduce muscle damage and to, to help your muscles repair after what, 12 plus hours on the oars. Because um, most, most rows do see a, a lot of wastage of muscles they're not using as much. Uh, they see a lot of wastage of just their their bodies. Like they become this weird, lean, sort of walking chicken, sort of really thin legs and then sort of really big back muscles and that's about it and everything else has just sort of got eaten away. Um, yeah, it's going to be fascinating to see what they, they look like when they come back to land. Yeah, I, I think getting a nutritional strategy in place that allows you to have a really solid plan A, look after yourself, um, you can always extend it out if things go sideways, right? So plan A, 10,000 calories or more. Plan B, you could eke mm. it out a little bit more if you had to. But uh, we're yeah. just kind of surprised that um, people look at nutrition in the way that they would just normally look at food. Are they going to be hungry? You, you know, Do they have enough to not be hungry? And obviously yeah. there's more that we can... <laughs> we can bring to that to support the body to perform and it's um it's a pretty fascinating area yeah absolutely there's so yeah you're absolutely right people kind of go oh what does it taste like um i you know these are my favorite flavors and that's pretty much you know like right i need breakfast lunch and dinner and i have an off you know some snacks and that that's pretty much as far as most people take it. And they'll probably look at a total calorie count and, and that will be it. Um, and yeah, I think that I mean, it, it is very natural for the first week or so of an ocean road to be, uh, to see sort of suppression of the appetite because 
it takes a little while for your body to realise, I think, exactly what it's taking on and how much it needs to be fueling. Uh, plus also a bit of seasickness. Maybe you're taking some anti-seasickness medication, which sort of doesn't help with, with uh, appetite and generally sort of suppresses um, all those sort of uh, natural triggers which are, uh, would be pushing you to, uh, to get tucked into food. Um, and also then it's just around that it's a bit different to what you normally do. You know, you don't, you can't just phone up Uber Eats or <laughs> some other sort of, uh, you can't just nip down out to a restaurant and go and, uh, go and grab a pizza. You know, you're like, oh, okay, right, I've got to cook this. and But I'm really tired. Mm. Am I going to be bothered enough to boil the water to, to make this? And so it's, it's going through those processes. And once you, you're out there for a week, it becomes, normal it's your life and so yeah you just keep on cracking with it awesome um i did want to ask just going into this obviously um damien and fergus they were as you said um doing shifts on the oars but someone's always rowing and now that fergus has been evacuated damien's um on his own and i just wanted to ask you if you know what his um strategy now looks like on the oars yeah, I'm not 100% certain, but we can I can infer or guess from his tracker. And there'll be times when you see the tracker doo, 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 and it's all going big old chunks every day and then at night time I I I would guess I'd put money on the fact that he's getting up in the morning, maybe 5, 6, 7 o'clock in the morning, something like this getting on the oars and pretty much rowing most of the day through to 10 or 11 at night, I think. Um, and I guess that there will be naturally times and breaks in between that where he'll make make food, make water, look after boat things, do a bit of uh, comms, uh, you know, checking what the one's going to be from the messages that I'm sending, things like this, um, calling home, making you know doing his his blogs and and diaries and stuff um but for the most part he's spending a lot of time just just rowing on the all yeah um it's phenomenal yeah i mean we we just find it incredible i mean you spend what two years or more planning for an event and then 13 days in you completely change everything your mentality changes you know on our end we think the nutritional strategy has probably changed the the logistics of when you're rowing and when you're sleeping and and just everything's changed right so with no planning at all Mm. i mean damien probably had a few hours notice and he was by himself yeah it was within four hours of fergus making the the original call um i called him back uh, about an hour later with uh having spoken to flight surgeon from the Coast Guard, having a chat with the Coast Guard, the uh, guys up at District 1, um, to say that, yeah, Fergus would definitely be coming off. Um, and two and a half hours, maybe, no, it was about two hours after that, they were in communication with the vessel that came alongside um, to uh, to evacuate Fergus. And within four hours of that first call, Damien was by himself. Mm, I think. Which is just... The thing is, um, and if if you look at it another way, if Damien is that capable to be able to adapt and just suddenly shoulder the load and responsibility of doing the remainder of an ocean crossing by himself, it speaks to someone that's that's pretty well trained, pretty capable to be that adaptable. I mean, that's that's not a small decision. 
yeah, no, not at all. And there was no hesitation on his part when I asked, you know, if if we get the choice, do you want to stay on board? And it's like, yeah, I want to keep going. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, yeah, no, there wasn't even a, that was never a question. Um, but uh, to have to re format your brain and realign it for something that's different. I mean, it's it's been Damien's baby, Damien's project, but still that doesn't make any difference when your teammate suddenly has to has to leave. Um, and you're still relatively, you know, you're still early within that first third of the journey. It's, oof, yeah, it's yeah. a big one. And especially with, you know, young family at home, they're going to be wondering how long it's going to be until he he comes back. Um, you know, it's a big, big decision to make and a really, really tough one. Um, but he's always been, and he's punched above his not inconsiderable weight mm-hmm. um, <laughs> continuously. You know, I think he's, he's an incredible guy and so grounded and humble and uh, thoughtful. Mm. Um, I think he knows himself really, really well. He came, comes across to me as somebody who's, I mean, he's not going to panic and, and flap in any situation. Um, but he, he also, he knows himself better than I think 99% of people in the world do. Mm. Um, and that's going to really like, he's going to be able to lean into that when he needs to. Do you have any remaining questions, Luke? No, I'm I'm happy. Yeah, thank you very much for joining us, Chris. I think we've um, we've covered a lot. We've covered a lot of what we want to speak about. Um, yeah, it's been a pleasure having you on. No problems. Great to great to be with you guys. Yeah, well, you too. And um, look, we we stay in touch. We're really huge believers behind this project, and um, we feel a long way away in New Zealand, but we watch it every day. Follow along. And uh, you know, wish wish Damien and the rest of your team all the best in achieving this. It's um, nothing short of remarkable. Yeah, absolutely. I'll pass it on. Thank you. Perfect.